Welcome to Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. I'm your host, Kathy Nelson, an electrical engineer who loves to hear and share stories of other women in STEM. I'm really excited for today's podcast guest for a couple of reasons. Well, actually for many reasons. Jayshree Sate is a fellow Minnesotan, and I think she has one of the coolest sounding jobs and job titles. She's the corporate scientist and the chief science advocate at 3M, one of the most well-known scientific companies in Minnesota. She has bachelor's, master's degrees, and a PhD in chemical engineering. She holds 72 patents. Yep, that's what I said, 72 patents, which is just crazy. She's been at 3M her entire career, which is also extremely impressive. She just published a book called The Heart of Science, Engineering Footprints, Fingerprints, and Imprints. And she's featured in a documentary, which is the movie that we're talking about at the beginning of the podcast, which is a little bit unclear. So I wanted to clear that up. And it recently premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's called Not the Science Type. She has a plethora of experience and a wealth of knowledge, and I'm just so excited that I got the chance to talk to her. Please enjoy her story. Hello, hello. Hi, Jayshree. How are you doing? Can you hear me? I can. Okay. I do have a fan going in the room. Can you hear that? Um, I can hear it a little bit. Yeah. But if it's hot and you need a fan, then you should go for the fan. <laughs> Yeah, it's strangely hot, so... Oh, just leave the fan. And this is a sunroom, so... Oh. <laughs> I don't have air conditioning in the in the sunroom, so... Is it warm I try to there? be in a quiet place when I have to do these kinds of things, so I usually come here, but... Yeah, no, I think okay. it's, it's... I mean, it's there, but it's not super noticeable. Okay. Um, is it warm down there? Because it's actually kind of, like, nicely cool up here today. No, it's just actually rained, so I'm glad. Otherwise, I'd have like the pitter-patter of the rain that you would be able to hear. Oh. <laughs> so it's just muggy. It's not, not like hot, hot here in this room. So how are you doing this afternoon? Uh, good. Um, well, okay, so I have to say, I see you posting so many things and involved in so many things that I can't even imagine how much stuff that you have going on. So, yeah, um, I just, um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks for the likes though. I do appreciate the likes. Oh, I love seeing all the stuff that you do because you're so involved in so many things. I just, excuse me. I love it. Yeah, I think it's what it does is it just spreads the word and then I get the sense of what resonates and what doesn't resonate and, and things like that. So I think it's always good. And I have such a big, I just never know, like, who who do they want? Because I am all of this. <laughs> so. Well, I have to say you are the first engineer slash movie star that I've had on the podcast. LOL. <laughs> I don't think that's an LOL. Um, it's actually kind of funny. Star? So, that's an LOL. Well, you starred in a documentary movie, right? So that okay. would make you a movie star. Um, and I think, so when you posted from the premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival, I had been in New York with my husband the weekend before and I had seen all the advertisements for it. So, and I had gone to the Hudson River park mm-hmm. um with like that you posted pictures from i'm like i was just there it's, it's like right behind where we had the screening uh the premiere yeah so it was like not even a block like you just look up there and it was there so uh, one of the days we just walked over there yeah it was nice 
it's really pretty. I it's it's new. I believe that's what I've heard anyway. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It is. It is really really pretty. Okay, so I want to ask you since we're talking about that, how was going to a premiere and seeing yourself on a big screen? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole experience was um, very interesting. Um, I think because we hadn't traveled and uh, 18 months and then suddenly you take a flight and it's all different. Everybody is masked up. And uh, in New York, I think it was in full capacity. You know, Manhattan is usually so busy. It wasn't. You must have seen that also mm-hmm. since you went there. Different. But yeah, I, I think the best part was meeting the other cast members um, whose, whose uh, journeys are also documented in the movie. So meeting them was great. Their families, uh, interacting with them. And then we had people from 3M who were there that I hadn't seen in so long because nobody has seen anybody. So just seeing your own folks, 3Mers that you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. So that was great as well. That was fun. Is it weird seeing yourself? And I don't, I don't know what size screen like a premiere is on. I have no idea. But is it weird seeing yourself on like a really big screen? Honestly, for me, it isn't because I don't know if you recall the 3M ads, you know, national ads that uh, went out in the World Series in 2019. I, I, I'm the person in those ads. So I've seen myself on, on big screen all mm. the time after that, because I would be, you know, there would be some somewhere it played and then I'd get like five people Oh my gosh, you were just in my, you know, kitchen. You were just in my, this thing. Oh my God. I told everybody my friends on and my family was like, oh, we know, you know, because you keep telling us that. So yeah, I've seen myself on the screen. uh, So it didn't seem so strange that that was not even a thought that crossed my mind. It was just strange to have your story be played out and i don't know what it is the moment you say the word parents you know you just your tears just are like right there and i'm thinking makeup on the face no crying (laughs) you know so that was more of my my sentiment (laughs) you know as soon as the word parent comes in and pictures of your parents i mean that's like Mm -hmm. a serious uh, (laughs) and especially since you haven't seen them in a while because of covid and travel and this and that so i think that was more like i gotta maintain my composure i'm gonna try not to cry that was the big bigger issue for me i'm a crier how was filming that filming was also during covid so followed all the protocols and um they came home and we actually filmed doing stuff and i didn't know the audio was on so i'm just like complaining Mm. about the fact that there's gonna be onion smell you know this (laughs) and that so all of that is in there so they they just were at home and we did the interview at home and then we went to various locations we went to the science museum of minnesota we went to my lab and office and um and then uh, a couple of buildings in uh, at 3m and they just followed you around and um, and we went to the lake that I walk around. It was all frozen. It was a week after the polar vortex, which I was mm. thankful for because the week of polar <laughs> vortex may not have been the best one to tape. It kind of just captured the essence of sort of your day and your life and things like that. And so it was kind of interesting. It was fun. And the thing is, since I was part of the 3M ad and I've gone through that process of filming and all of that, it wasn't so new, difficult, different or unknown to me because I've just gone through this whole process. So much filming and, you know, sitting on the set and answering questions and uh, things like that. So it was pretty 
much like that previous experience. The only difference being here it was more about yourself. You're talking about yourself and uh, your journey and things that you probably haven't shared with people. So the closest I've come is I've done like a couple of, you know, taped things for like vendors and things like that for them to use. And I get so self-conscious mm-hmm. that I'm like, thank goodness there are good editors because I feel like I trip over my tongue. I feel like I just feel really weird. Having oh, a- yeah, of course. Uh, so I have watched it about 50 times, I want to say. And each time I say, look at my hair. I mean, the first thing is appearance. (laughs) I think I have to catch myself trying not to be shallow, but it's always that physical appearance, hair, makeup, clothes, fat rolls, you know, things like that (laughs) is the first thing that you look for. Then you're like, oh my God, the wallpaper is showing, then this (laughs) and that. And then, oh, they took the back of my head and I've got gray because I haven't been coloring, you know. So all the vanity things and those kinds of things. And then you go on the English, the accent for me, you know, and then where the editing is and and how it turned out. And that's not what I meant. This is what I mean to say. I mean, I think we women anyway, torture ourselves with all those things. That's just part and parcel of that. And so I just say, that's just who we are. It's going to happen. I'm going to do it. It's just the process of me finally liking what I see (laughs) because of that whole process of analyzing. And then, uh, you know, I have a bunch of girlfriends and, uh, you know, high school group. And I was talking about this and this and that. And then finally somebody said, you know, why are you so focused on how you look? It's not about that. It's about what you say and the message that you're bringing. And I was just like, you know what? Thank you, dear friend, for pointing that out. Because, uh, you know, I've been so much on camera and doing so many things. And I'm, like you said, feeling self-conscious about certain things. But really, it shouldn't take away from the message. So I myself need to focus on the message and not worry about these things. So yeah, I think it's a it's a journey. Because none of us are used to that. That's not what we do. That's not what we trained for, right? So we're examining ourselves like scientists and going, uh you know, like put ourselves under I a microscope. Think, exactly. And I think that's what we have to stop uh, and catch yourself. And that's why it's great to have friends who can just say, Jisha, you're focusing too much on how you end up looking. It's not about that, right? It's about what you said and your message and, and things like that. So don't let's not focus on that, which I totally appreciated hearing from good friends who who are rooting for me, cheering for me tr- and who I trust. Yeah. And it's hard though, because we're our own worst critics. And so, you know, we are so critical of ourselves at times that we shouldn't be, that we should be celebrating ourselves. We focus on the negative things as opposed to celebrating the positive things. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought you looked great. I thought you sounded great. I loved it. So for whatever that's worth, I thought it was Thank wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And I and I hope the message resonates too. I mean, the whole idea about the movie, and we're talking about not the science type. This is the 3M docuseries that we just premiered uh, during uh, Tribeca. And the idea there is that we need more people to be energized and inspired and encouraged and, and going to STEM, specifically women and underrepresented minorities. And as far as women go, we want to make sure that people understand that we need to shatter these stereotypes that prevent women from going into STEM. So we have four uh, scientists highlighted, Gitanjali Rao, who's the kid scientist and, you know, time kid of the year, and how she followed her passion. Dr. Sierra Sevels, who is a uh, the first black uh, nuclear engineer from UMish and how 
how a teacher basically inspired her to follow that path. And now she's, you know, blazing trails. Uh, Jessica Taft, Dr. Jessica Taft, who's creating a job that she wants based on her interests, not just how on the paths are laid out. And then myself, who was not somebody who was excited about science, went into science and then realized, oh my God, we don't talk about all the good stuff. And from my perspective, the good stuff is that science allows you to make a difference. It allows you to help solve problems. It improves lives. It helps people. All we talk about is the content, 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 which really wasn't something that was inspiring to me. So we, all four stories are different, different kind of careers, different uh, objectives, but it all shows that, you know, you need to shatter these stereotypes that don't inspire. You have to sort of dismantle the archetypes and the to stop this sort of typecasting of what women can and can't do. And, and that's our objective with that docuseries. So thank you that you liked it. Well, in, in the beginning of it, when it talks about the stereotype of what a scientist is, I think that's also really important is to talk about that we are scientists, we are engineers, we are technologists, and we are also normal people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just happen to be an engineer, happen to be a scientist. And that's like one of the things that I hope to do through this podcast is, you know, showcase that we are normal people that have hobbies and lives and Mm -hmm. What is normal people that happen to be that have chosen that for a career? And I really like the idea of normalizing all of that. And I constantly find myself wondering when I put something out there about my normal life, will people go, oh, that's just too much information because the the path that has been laid out and the people that have come before us is you don't talk about your lives. Mm-hmm. You're just this scientist and you're this engineer. And, and that's what that is. But that's not who I am. Like I'll go into every meeting and everything, every time, every presentation, every, I bring my family, I bring this, I bring that because that's who I am. And why should I go to work and then say, oh, okay, I guess nobody else is doing X, Y, Z. So I have to change myself completely and, and do that. So I still feel like when I put stuff out there on LinkedIn and I say, here's where I went and here's what I thought. And, and, and I'm sure people are like, oh, that's too much information. Well, that's just what we're going to have to deal with because I am a normal human being, you know, and I am happen to be, like you said, a scientist. And I want to show that it normalizes scientists. And that is important to attract women and underrepresented minorities to this field, because otherwise you've again created this archetype of who it who it is. And, and nobody's inspired anymore to go there unless you are exactly that. So the more stereotypes we shatter the better it is i i worry a little bit but i still put it out there thinking it's important to normalize like you said yeah, i completely agree and i've started doing um some linkedin articles that kind of tie in things of my personal life to messages that resonate either with with work or with engineering or with science or with my last one was about narratives but it's my it's kind of trying to combine them together I don't know if it I mean but I also feel weird about it too so I totally Mm -hmm. understand that because it's like I'm putting myself out there in a way that I haven't before and let me ask you something else because you brought something else up about you know the archetypes and stuff and I have had I don't know if it was just one woman or a couple of women on my podcast who don't like to be referred to as doctor they have PhDs they don't like because they think it makes I don't know if it's like that it intimidates people or makes them stand out. Do you have that? I mean, you you have a PhD, you're a doctor. Do you have that same philosophy? Yeah, 
I'll be very honest. I'm a very informal person. And to me, it's just an added layer of formality. And we at 3M are very informal as well. And we're all Dr. Blah, blah, and blah. So never even occurred to me. Now, if it, I was in academia, it would be different. And just yesterday, was it yesterday? I was this week anyway, I was told that they would refer to me as Dr. Jayshree till I would say, yes, don't refer to me as that. And because the meeting started and they started calling me Dr. Jayshree. And I said, no, just Jayshree, you know, and she said, you know what? I was uh, talking to a person and there were four doctors in the room that, and they doctor this, doctor this, doctor this. And then they went to the woman and said, Bobby, you know, and so oh. it's like she said, that it bothered her that the men were referred to as mm -hmm. for the women. It was, you know, it, so I, I get that point also. It's like, this is the thing, Kathy. I listen to people and I learn something every day. It's like, oh my gosh, I never thought about that. That's a great perspective that when you are in a room and there's five people and you're in a different environment, not your 3M casual informal environment, but be remember this, you know, if they're referring to them as doctor and they don't refer to you, take that data point, make a, make a point about it, you know, if you can at the meeting or later, because that's what some of the younger folks are going to be watching and looking for, right? We have traversed so much of our careers sort of not worrying about these kinds of things or not thinking too much about it. But there's a generation that's coming behind us who's looking for these things because they have learned that these are part of the problem. So we don't want to be part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. So I think if you are in an environment which is important that you be referred to as doctor, great. But in my daily life and in, in everything, if somebody says Dr. Said, I, I would think they're calling my dad or something. <laughs> it's just not something that we use at all. But that's corporate environment. And that's also 3M's casual informal culture. Well, that makes sense to me. And I guess I hadn't thought of that. So my dad is a professor. He has a PhD. And so he was always Dr. Kale. And mm -hmm. so in my head, you have a PhD, you're Dr. Somebody. And so maybe... I, I guess I guess the corporate world it's it's different. I just yeah. I don't I don't work in an in an area where I work with PhDs, so it's not something that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. I'm Jay Shri for you, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. I have so many things I want to ask you about. I don't. Let's go back. Let's go to the book next because that's okay. I think another great thing. You have been really busy this year, so you have not been <laughs> sitting back during COVID at all. Um, I. I finished reading your book. I loved it. I, so let me just let me just say what there's several things that I loved about it. But I loved the bite-sized chunks of reference material. Like I think that's absolutely great because you can go back to things and reread them and go back for inspiration, go back for advice. How did you come about writing the book, and how was that experience for you? Yeah, it would, that's another one of those interesting things. Like I've been writing for a while, just small bite-sized sort of articles and putting them out there on LinkedIn, even before I got this role of chief science advocate that which I hold now. And then I do a lot of things related to that. And it was just, I just had ideas and I would write them. I've always liked writing and put it out there. Some of them resonated and I thought, oh, that's cool. And I kind of like this sort of acrostic style, the mnemonics and things like that, the play on words and all of that has just been something that I just have always enjoyed ever since I was a child. And I think it was in middle school when our teacher wanted us to memorize the cranial nerves, I think it was. And she said, and we were like, how are we going to memorize this? And she said, Uta Fagwa, you know, and she made a 
acronym out of that. And I thought, that's brilliant, because then I could just rattle off all of those. I don't know if that kind of sealed the deal for me or whatever. I just love the idea of remembering things easily and, and, and doing it this way. So I would write these articles and then... Um, pandemic comes in 2020 we're all you know stuck inside and then we have the uh, the raw and revealing events that unfolded uh, over memorial day weekend uh, with the murder of george floyd and the next few weeks were really tough for many people definitely for all of us in minnesota and uh, from my perspective it was how did I not know the systemic nature of this? How did I not know that? I mean, I pride myself on learning and understanding and all of that. How did I not know how systemic that is? So I read a lot, went through my whole cycle of everything. And then I was just like, I got to do something. I got to do something. I can't believe I've not done anything about this. So it was 4th of July weekend that it finally hit me after having read everything that I'm going to have to do something. And I, the first day, you know, after we opened after 4th of July, I called the the um, Society of Women Engineers uh, CEO, Karen Horting, and I basically said, I've got a proposal. I'm going to write this book. It's going to be about all the articles that I've written. We're going to compile it. And then can we please, uh, um, you know, publish it through SWE so that it actually goes to the people who, who would love to read it. And then all proceeds go for a scholarship for a black woman in STEM. And Karen was like, okay, done. And I was like, and I was practicing all these things that I would tell her <laughs> why this is important, how we should do it, how I can help. And she was just like, done. She says, you know what? We're all struggling to think what all we can do. This is a great idea. So that's exactly how it happened. So I took all these articles and then uh, we basically looked through the articles and I got a help from an uh, excellent publisher uh, and they helped me figure out which go where, how, what is the order, and um, we basically put it all together. So I'd work hours and hours after work to, to get this done, but I was super energized about it. And we launched it during the Society of Women Engineers uh, big annual event, because that was also the time I was uh, being awarded their, uh, their uh, achievement award. Uh, and so it all timing worked out. And uh, I'm so glad to report, Kathy, that we have sold enough copies that the first student will receive a scholarship this fall. Oh, so awesome. super excited about it. And so if you would put the book in the uh, the link to the book in your um, podcast and the listeners can go to it, that would be great. Because what it does is, is it not only you take something away from it by reading it, and you also are giving the gift of education. Uh, so would love to spread the word. Yeah, it's a it's amazing. And okay, so there's actually a couple things in the book that I want to kind of pick your brain about. So one of them is you talk about and this this came up on another woman that I was that I was interviewing on my podcast, the left brain and right brain idea. So I think we all or you know, maybe this is changing, but I think we've all been kind of fed the narrative that you're either, either right brain or left brain. And as I start thinking about narratives, because that's kind of has been on my mind lately is that, you know, we're fed these narratives, you're good at math, you're not good at math, you're mechanically inclined, you're not mechanically inclined, you're creative, or you're logical, right. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I love the idea of breaking that narrative on the left brain, right brain, because I, I don't know about you, I, I feel like you probably do this, but I don't know that many of us think about how creative you have to be in science and engineering and all the people who developed inventions and innovate 
why are we not thinking that they're creative and that they're only using half their brain, I guess? Yeah, I mean, these neuro myths need to be debunked and they have been. So many of them are not even rooted in any reality, right? And uh, I don't know, the narratives take a life of their own. So the, the less we use them, the better, because they aren't really inspiring. They're telling people what you can and can't do. Yeah. I, I just don't subscribe to that. And I think if you look back if you've been told that you're this and you look back, you'll find a lot of things that you've done from the other side. And if you were told you were this, you've done the other way. So I just don't even think about that. And you're absolutely right. Science is such a creative pursuit and we don't talk about that. And that's why I, when I like to talk about science, I say things like, I love the art of science. I love the beauty of the scientific method. I love its mystery and I love the drama and I love the intrigue. And I, and I, and I live for the, the challenges and the satisfaction. Once you have that problem, to solve uh, it's it's like investigative journalism and that takes creativity you know finding and uncovering information then it's like detective work and so you're asking a lot of questions and logically sort of tracking down leads then you have to put together all these pieces like an artist and see this uh, what I like to call the mosaic that you have built and then you develop a compelling narrative out of that as to what I'm going to do why I'm going to work on it and why it's important and how I'm going to communicate that's like a storyteller so you know, to be able to convince yourself that this is a problem worth solving, then it's about presenting a case that like a lawyer, then inspiring others to join the cause like a leader. And then as an expert craftsman, you're working with a team on very specific tasks. You have your tools to identify the building blocks that you need to solve the problem. The scientific method has it all. And so you're doing it. You can't say you are either being creative or logical. There's just steps that require different aspects to be emphasized, you know. So whether, you know, it was my work on tapes for diapers on wiggly babies or tapes that go in phones or tapes that go in planes, trains, or automobiles. It's that story that sticks and you're, you're, you're creating that narrative for your own self and to convince others that it's an important problem. So it takes all parts of your brain. Well, you actually just made me think of something when you were talking at the beginning is so, so math is something that I grew up loving. Um, and there's a beauty in math that mm -hmm. I, I don't know if everyone appreciates, but you just made me like really think that it's, you know, there's the creative side, but there's also this beauty in the art mm -hmm. of it that's behind it. And the art that, I mean, math is in art and in, in so many things, but I would never, I don't know that I would have really thought about that. Yeah, I, I think... Uh... Anything that stops you from doing something, I think we really got to revisit those a lot because there are already so many barriers we put in front of us ourselves. Some of them are from the evolutionary construct. Some of them are from the social conditioning. Some of them are from other kinds of, uh, you know, biases and boundaries that we put around us. I think the more we change the narrative for ourselves and others, I think the better it's going to be. And I think every time I see one of those, I just try to put it in a human context. And you would have heard me say them in the real stickish stem, science, humanities, technology, engineering, and math. And if you start thinking in those terms, everything that you're doing has a human context. Once you have to communicate with humans, it requires that creativity to make a compelling story out of it. So without that, are you really solving a problem? And if you are, how is your solution going to be adapted? Because at the end of the day, some humans have to implement it. So I think it's just part of it that has been taken, uh, taken for granted, sort of, because it's not important, perhaps, in a very male-centric environment. But if you want more women to be attracted towards these fields, I think putting that art 
around it is going to inspire more people. And also, I would say, I would argue any young people who want the sense of purpose about what they're doing. I think we have to communicate it more than what it is. That content is okay, but we need to talk more about the context. Well, and I don't know that there's, well, it's hard for me to say this because I haven't lived like in previous generations, but I feel like right now that human context within science is so incredibly important because the major things that we are talking about with climate change, with the pandemic, all of that is around people and you know the effect that it's going to have on people and to you know, preclude that human context from, from the science and from that research would be disastrous and, and I think impossible to do. Absolutely. And I mean, I've always kind of known that, but not really understood that or the scale and the impact of it till I got this role as chief science advocate. And the reason why I got this role is just to back up is we do the survey uh, called the State of Science Index, and we wanted to understand the public perception of science. And, and the first year that it was done, and I was like, of course, people are going to say science is important, science solves problems, this, that, and the other. And the results come back, and there's all this, uh, wow, you know, four out of ten said if science didn't exist, their lives would be no different. And I'm like, what? <laughs> is this for real? And and then you realize, oh, my God, they were taking the survey on their laptops and mobile phones. So science is <laughs> invisible. Science is underappreciated. Science is taken for granted. And you exactly what you just said, because the human context of it was so missing in the way that we must be communicating that people are like, yeah, I don't care whether you have science or not, you know, and then they're playing with their gadgets, which is like, uh, you know, some fundamental uh, science that went into it to afford them those gadgets. So I think there's a lot to it. And it's interesting. So we've done this survey, the 3M State of Science Index since, uh, you know, the mid 2017. So this is our fifth wave, right? And we did it in 2021. In 2020, we did it twice, one before the pandemic and one once during the pandemic, it's very interesting. Skepticism is down and trust in science and scientists is up. And why is that? Because we had this pandemic and people saw science take center stage. They saw scientists as people who were communicating what needs to get done. And we did this globally. And, and we have demographic representation of the census from each country, thousand people. And people were saying, yes, let's follow the science. Science is important. And now in 2021, the results show that the defining sentiment around science is hope people see that we're turning the corner it's because of the gift of the vaccine which is a gift of science and so yes science is important it gives me hope for the future and actually those results are really what also inspired us to make that docuseries not the science type because people said we're inspired and more kids are opting for STEM because of what they saw as to how science played out and the important role it had. And people are also recognizing that we need diversity in STEM. We need innovation and innovation needs diversity. We need more women and underrepresented minorities. We need social and uh, STEM equity. So all these things are sort of coming together because of that human context. And that human context was perhaps put in the forefront because of the pandemic. Now the question is, do people recognize that we have a lot to do 
once we're done with the pandemic, this pandemic. And of course, they said sustainability solutions that will also require science. So people are recognizing that. So I think it's a very good time to advocate for science and advocate for that diversity and advocate for equity because people understand how important it is. And the fact that we have all these sustainability challenges and in order to solve them, we will need more people and their creativity in STEM. I do want to talk about what you do for a job, but I want to ask, I want to follow up with something like real quick. And I get this perception and it, it may be my particular news sources. I'm not really sure, but I feel the skepticism about climate change, the skepticism about vaccines. Do you see that as being, because you said that, that this data comes from different countries. Do you see that being U.S. specific? Do you see that being something that is global? What are you seeing? Uh, we always have, uh, you know, the skepticism. The idea that people are skeptical is not the issue, but they are skeptical of all science. That becomes becomes the issue. But uh, honestly, in our survey, in a very representative survey of global, uh, you know, population, 17 countries, we are seeing people clearly say you need to follow the science to get out of the pandemic. So I think we have, and we discussed the results a lot. The data is what it is, right? So the way we have rationalized it and we even had a question actually let me back up we even had a question saying do you think others are following the science and people said yes i believe they are so there may be naysayers and there's obviously pockets that don't follow the science but we, they get some so much disproportionate time in media and attention mm -hmm. that sometimes we feel like oh my god that's a a lot bigger population than it actually is not that they don't exist because frankly we it's the overwhelming majority around the world who said we need to follow the science to get out of the pandemic so the sense is that people understand the important role science plays in, in, in situations like this. Will we have a, a set of population that's always contrary you know, to all those things? Absolutely. We always have had, we'll always have, um, but I think the majority of the people are recognizing the important role of science. And the beauty of this whole thing is that it played out in the public. So people got a chance to observe what a scientific process really is, that you come up with a recommendation as new data becomes available, a recommendation changes. And of course, there's many attempts to politicize that and all that good stuff. That'll always go on. But people see as the data becomes available, recommendation changes, more data becomes available, recommendation changes. And that's good that it does. You want it to because that that's how science works. It works with debate and discourse and discussion and new data and new findings lead to new recommendations. So bringing the public along is very important. And this was in a very prominent center stage way, perhaps not the best, but I think a benefit has been that people have seen how science played out. Of course, we'd love to say that this, you know, if you talk to Catelyn Creek or she'll say mRNA was not developed at warp speed. <laughs> it right. took many years. So there's the whole idea of how you communicate and what you communicate and how it can confuse the public and all that good stuff. So at the end of the day, it's not just the science. I mean, it's the practitioners. It's not just the policies, but the politics. It's not just the people. It's the perception. I'm figuring all of that out in this role as chief science advocate that I have and all the results that we get from our state of science index survey and everything else we do on the science advocacy piece. Well, and I think you bring up a good point that the communication is also really important as well. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, traditionally, that has been a challenge in the science world, in the academic world, in the medical world, is being able to communicate with lay people to help them understand that. 
I feel like, and I don't know if like if what your perspective is, but I feel like there are a lot of people that are really working to change that, like really working to make a difference, really working to um, curate medical and research articles so that they can be understood by lay people so that there's not this disconnect. Are you are you seeing that? Yeah, absolutely. I think this was a great opportunity for a lot of people to recognize what the problem is uh, and create and curate information because as we all saw, there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there too. But it's interesting in our survey, we also asked that question is what sources are you trusting? And people said, we trust scientists and, you know, even we trust corporations and things like that. Um, and the lowest was like social media and celebrities and things like that. So it's interesting. The survey mm -hmm. results were very promising to me in that way that I've been so worried about what's going around on like WhatsApp and things like that. I get all sorts of posts from family and friends all around the world. We're all connected on WhatsApp and I'm just like, no, stop. Do not forward this. Use your critical thinking. Trust your sources, blah, blah, blah. And I was very worried about it. But the results clearly show that people are not trusting. They may be passing it along. They may be reading it. But really, it made people think more critically about information. And I think uh, that's good. That's good that that education was there. And that's good that people saw trustworthy scientists communicating effectively on center stage, providing guidelines and uh, advice and therapies and then developing the vaccine. Uh, I think all of that has put science in a very positive light, but it's a great, great responsibility now uh, moving forth to keep that in the forefront. Okay, so that actually makes me feel a lot better because this has been something that I honestly, I've, I've worried about and probably had even like some anxiety around because it, it feels so prevalent. Um, but I, I, I think it probably is what I'm just reading and the news sources that I'm seeing. And just because I, th I think you're right that it may just be the vocal minority that we keep hearing. I hope you're enjoying this podcast and Jayshree's story. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, head over to your favorite podcast platform where you can rate it or even better, write a review, which will help other people find my podcast and bring these women's stories to more listeners. You can also find me, Kathy Nelson, at www.ordinarily-extraordinary.com. Thanks, and back to Jayshree's story. So now that we're like halfway through talking about talking in the podcast, I want to go back to what you do for a job. I, I feel like <laughs> I did this a little bit backwards. You sound, your job sounds like it is a dream job, honestly. So you are 3M's corporate scientist and chief science advocate, correct? Mm -hmm. What does that job entail? Right. So corporate scientists, let's deal with that first. So it's just different level of scientists. So if you join at a PhD level, so you're a senior scientist and then you, you know, can um, progress further. So corporate scientist means that I'm at the highest level that you can attain as a scientist at 3M. So I'm very blessed, honored uh, to be at that level. I'm the first uh, trained engineer to be at that level uh, and the fourth woman. Uh, so I'm uh, constantly thinking about uh, those numbers and, and how we can sort of change that uh, and, and things are changing. And then uh, so in that role, I essentially do, you know, 
technology development, product development, things like that. I, I identify problems to solve. I solve problems. Uh, very specifically, I work in the area of adhesives and tapes, which should surprise no one uh, if, if they know 3M and 3M adhesives and tapes, and hopefully they, <laughs> they love them. Uh, of course, now we're very much known for the masks, uh, you know, with, and the respirators with the, with the pandemic. But yeah, I work on industrial adhesives, so it wouldn't be like the post-it notes that you just showed. Those are the consumer products, but I, I, I work on adhesives that go into plain strange automobiles, phones, things like that. So I develop technology that can be used in these um, products, uh, commercialize them, coming up with new ideas on how we could make them better, you know, more temperature resistant, more this or that. And then we patent those ideas. I do bench scale planning of experiments, factory experiments, you know, planning for data. I mean, a typical day is a lot of data, uh, you know, looking at it, generating it, analyzing it, digesting it, and figuring out what experiment next to run, planning your experiments, interacting with customers, um, building strategy on what we should be doing, but also in the role as cor of corporate scientists, it means that I get involved in strategy, not just in my uh, business, not in just my division, not in just my uh, group, but at a corporate level, because now you've you've got a voice to actually weigh in on what the corporate strategy needs to be. So that's a great privilege that comes with this role. And then, you know, reading classes, seminars, trade shows, conferences, etc. And then lots of activities at 3M as they relate to our technical community, uh, also employee resource networks, things like that. And in my role as chief science advocate, I advocate for science. And this is, as I said, a role that was created after those results became available from the first round of the 3M State of Science Index, where we realized, oh my God, science needs advocates, science needs more champions, science needs this prominence out there because people are saying if science didn't exist my life wouldn't be any different and what the hey they're they're holding that phone and you know so there's this disconnect so i was called upon to be the chief science advocate which was an interesting you know uh, proposition i'm like wait a minute what now what is this role because you know if you google it that role doesn't exist anywhere <laughs> it's like wait a minute now who's what? what so i was a little confused about that and then i thought oh my gosh how can i take that role i never sort of thought of myself as a scientist scientist. I don't think of myself as this typical scientist. I'm not an expert in any one thing. I'm always wanted to chase problems to solve. I identify them. I try to solve them. I'm like not your typical what I thought would be, you know, so it was that whole process in my head. But I'm so glad I took this role because it was also the time I realized that, look, I didn't want to go into science because of the way we talk about it. Well, it turns out a lot of people don't like the way we talk about it because they have this huge disconnect. So, oh my gosh, I got to change it. And then I'm also a parent, daughter and son, and I clearly saw the reasons why my daughter did not want to go into science, you know, mommy, I'm not a geek and this and that. I don't want, I mean, all those things. There's nobody in the science classes. I don't want to take math. I don't want to do this, you know. Oh my gosh, that's when I realized all these media portrayals, you know, we can laugh them off, but they are making a huge impact on impressionable minds. Oh my gosh. And I was just fired up about that because there's this evil and maverick and loner and nerd and geek and 
all these things that little girls aren't aspiring to be and you don't talk about science in the way it ought to be talked about so i took this role on and i just broke it down very simply true j Shree fashion a b and c a we're gonna have to raise the awareness and appreciation and acknowledgement of science we can't have this apathy where people are like well yeah if science didn't exist you know so that means they don't see the connection between this and and science and that's the disservice to science actually so we've got to do that and then b was about breaking down barriers and boundaries and biases and that involves the genius barrier the left brain right brain or our science is not for me i'm a girl or uh, you know maverick loner evil stereotypes and stuff like that and c was about championing in a context that is important for people it's not just about the experiments that you did. What does it mean? How does it impact people? How does it improve lives? How does it solve problems? I mean, putting that context is so important. And so that has been my strategy, essentially. And then we do a lot of things on our science advocacy platform. You know, based on the results, we decided, oh, we better take do a podcast where we take all these data points that are coming out and, and discuss it with people who can illuminate why the public thinks so, what can we do about it, etc. So we did the Science Champions podcast. We uh, compiled a scientist as storyteller's guide because it was very clear from the results of the 2019 survey that people think of scientists as some people who can't communicate they're up there elitist and all of that so how do you communicate and then beyond the beaker was a series we did to portray scientists as regular people what you just said kathy when we started like normal people i just happen to be a scientist for a profession and that's what we did we portrayed diverse scientists who are you know dancing who are part of the community uh, efforts who are uh, you know have uh, hobbies and regular stuff of regular people taking care of families children stuff like that and then i i talk a lot i i i um, you know, spread the word wherever I can about the results of the index, what it means, what people need to do, etc. And then a lot of things that I come up with based on my own experiences, my experiences at work, my experiences raising kids and things like that. Uh, and then we also did um, when, you know, 55 million kids suddenly transitioned, that was a big concern. Science is one of those topics that really needs hand on, hands on mm -hmm. stuff and our, how are we keeping kids engaged? So while my coworkers were working overtime to get all those respirators, you know, production doubled and then doubled again and attacking the pandemic from all angles, what are we gonna do, those who are not in that business? So we decided to create the series called Science at Home, where we just did experiments, you know, simple experiments that reinforce core scientific principles. And it was great fun so we keep thinking of things to do and we have had a long history of uh commitment towards stem education we're very active in all the communities that we operate in so you know we spent a lot of money uh in that so uh, you know i was very happy that we are able to have impact across the entire continuum so in that role i give keynotes i travel i used to travel <laughs> uh, let me correct my <laughs> travels anymore uh and then Again. Yeah, and, and but tra and the message travels, right? How do you make the message travel? So we were talking about before we started about the the whole LinkedIn presence and all of that. That's all new to me, right? Navigating that mm -hmm. and trying to get the message out as much as possible. That look, there these are problems and these are actually hindering. And I know I raise my hand. I'm one of those who will say exactly. I did not want to go into science for this exact reason because it did not make sense to me based on what my 
image was and what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people. I wanted to improve lives. I wanted to make the world a better place. And I couldn't see that connection. Why don't we talk about that? And then my daughter doesn't want to go in science because of what she sees. So how do we break these barriers? And I read a lot about all the research that has been done. And you can see that girls and underrepresented minorities have more pro-social goals. That is a reality. It has been substantiated. So how do we talk about this to make it more welcoming and inviting for them? And we should because we need the creativity and we need all of that. Like I would have not entered science. So would we have had the 72 ideas that I have patents on now? Like would we have had those? I don't know. But I brought my mindset, I brought the way I think, and I brought what I thought was creativity and my humanity's bent of mind. And I've been very successful as a scientist. So it's all possible. I didn't get into the top schools. I wasn't educated at, you know, top colleges, but I did fine. And I struggled along the journey, but I did fine. So bringing that authenticity and my true story, I, I believe also helps people understand that, oh my gosh, you don't have to be some formulaic. I was really good at science science and math. I always wanted to be a scientist. I was tearing apart toys to understand and that, that those are just stereotypes, archetypes. Mm -hmm. Science needs all kinds of people because we have all kinds of problems that we need to solve. I feel like every company should have a chief science advocate because there, there needs to be more than more than one person advocating for that. And I think like something I've been thinking about, and I, I, I have no idea how to do this, but it starts so young. Like, how do we get engineers and scientists or female engineers and scientists or underrepresented minority engineers and scientists and mathematicians into media that our kids are seeing? You know, like, how do we get them into books? How do we get them into TV shows? How, and there are a couple but it's very rare. It's really, really hard to find. How mm -hmm. do we make that a normal narrative for our girls to grow up with mm -hmm. versus yeah. it being this, I don't know why I, that I want to say weird thing, but this, you know, some, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't know that people, you know, that are developing our media that our kids are watching think about that mm -hmm. because they're not being, you know, faced with that. They're not seeing those people either. You know, mm -hmm. so how do we change that entire narrative? And I think it starts so young. And you made me think of something where you're talking about being on LinkedIn and starting this presence. I'm like, you're going to be on TikTok pretty soon. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's what my think, kids are watching. Right, right. And I think there's many. And, and I would also like to say that yeah, it's certainly great that 3M created this role, recognizing this, uh, this issue. But many, many, many companies and many organizations are doing this. And uh, I think everybody understands uh, they may not have that one person talking to it, but they have. And even before I was appointed at 3M, we had thousands of scientists actually going out in the communities and doing these kinds mm -hmm. of things. So I think that has to continue and that has to really be ramped up. And across the board, I think there's responsibilities, right? The responsibility that parents have, responsibilities that educators have, responsibility that colleges and educational organizations have, responsibilities that academia has, and responsibilities that corporation and then society at large. Because there's a lot of social conditioning that is actually 
part of all of this. And that's an issue. And then men have to be allies in this because it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, we've all seen the movie Hidden Figures. We've all read about the fact that the computers, human computers, were all women. And they were edged out as soon as the jobs became glamorous and high-paying and all of that. So any doubt about any kind of capability that should be all thrown out, it's not that. It's like, it's, 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 we've got to all for, our survival depends on it. Our survival depends on the fact that we bring in all the innovation and all the creativity that we can muster because God knows we have many challenges that we face, not just sustainability challenges, but across the board. And, and every day we see the results of systems and products that had been developed with a monolithic community and how much damage they can create, right? So I think people are recognizing that people are stepping up and more people need to step up and more people need to have that recognition uh, so that it just becomes an ordinary thing across the spectrum, you know, schools, early childhood, corporate and things like that. And the fact that women do think differently and it's again because the survival depended on it that we have, you know, different ways of thinking. So that's where all the diversity and inclusion initiatives really become important, you know, to get that acceptance of different ways of thinking and attacking problems and that's it's all okay and that it's great in fact and we welcome that and invite that you know you talked you talked about being able to have all these all the viewpoints of the damage that has happened i think that that is something that is just now coming to light and something that needs to be highlighted that if we don't have everybody participating, we are not providing the best solutions, or we may actually be, well, <laughs> we are definitely harming people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how to change that narrative. It's a big narrative to change. It is. It is. But I think I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm hopeful. I think even small things uh, make a make and have a ripple effect. And, and things like, you know, uh, the docuseries that we created, right? Not the Science Type clearly tries to address some of the stereotypes. And there are many, many efforts out there like that. And, and it's just a matter of reach and, and getting to the people and getting to the right people and making people aware of the things they say even in their homes or the stereotypes that they subscribe to and the damaging impact of, of those and systemically if we keep making those changes and I think there's a great need and great awakening around the social justice aspect of this and STEM equity and how access to science is not there people don't have role models and things like that I mean those kinds of things are also uh, you know receiving a lot of uh, visibility these days and all of us are looking at our a particular sphere of influence and seeing what are the things we can change. So even at 3M, you know, this year we did a seminar, a series called Ascend, where we had underrepresented minority students who are exposed to the intern environment. What does mean? How do you interview? What are the jobs? Just providing exposure. Like you and I grew up with dads who were engineers and PhDs and things like that. That's a different environment altogether. Mm -hmm. There are many, 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 many people out there who have no idea what a scientist does. Mm -hmm. No idea, they haven't met one. So, so how do you provide them the exposure and the encouragement and the engagement and, uh, and whatever is needed in order to make them sort of pursue? So we're doing a lot of those activities. I think there's also the matter of representation. People need to see somebody who kind of looks like them. For some people, it's very important, uh, especially in underserved communities. So how do we make sure we have people in our corporate environment who are going to lead that sort of charge? And how do we hire in the right places? How do we get more people 
able to apply? Are we recruiting the right people? Those kinds of things. So all these systems and processes, I'd like to believe in all organizations are being looked at because the time is now. It's a great window of opportunity to do something about it after what we've been through, you know, not just the pandemic, the disproportionate impact and all the social justice issues that came to light. I also feel like there's a lot of hope. I don't know if it's because of doing this podcast that I just, I talk to a lot more women and pretty much every woman that I talk to, granted, a lot of them are probably on the podcast because they want to bring STEM to more women and to more underrepresented minorities. But the passion and the just like, I feel like there's this just big community of people that want to get that message out there. And and that 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 does provide me a lot of a lot of hope. Um, mm-hmm. Let me ask you, when you started being a um, chief science advocate, were you already in like the public space so that you were already doing keynotes and doing some type, you know, some, you talked about the, you talked about the um, commercials that you did for at the World Series. Were you already kind of in like a public facing role so that you didn't have to get over communication like public communication challenges, or was that something that you're comfortable with, or did you have to work on those that skill set? I was already communicating quite a bit because I was giving presentations on innovation and and leadership and career journey and things like that. So I was doing quite a bit of that. Having risen to the level of corporate scientist, you already get quite a bit of visibility and and things like that. And it was actually, you know, when I because of the fact that I was doing all these presentations and already writing and had a point of view, I believe I was picked for this role. So mm. I've always uh, sort of enjoyed the storytelling aspect of communication. And I've always enjoyed building a compelling narrative, even around the projects that I'm doing. So even an ordinary presentation of my, you know, mundane projects, I try to give it a lot of pizzazz and talk about it in a way that I can inspire myself and as a result, inspire others. So I've always liked that aspect. So I didn't have to dig too deep uh, there to change anything. I think the bigger thing was for me was to wear the mantle of the science advocate and, uh, you know, an advocate for women and all those things, because I'd never even thought about all those things. I was just going about my business, doing my job and, and, and all of that. And not even, you know, stupid me recognizing all the issues that are there. It's really opened my eyes that sometimes there are events and sometimes there are chance meetings and things where you really become aware of all the things that you're not seeing and all the things you set aside because you just wanted to be productive and efficient and be the signal and not worried about all this noise. But in a way, it's a disservice because you're not helping others as much as you potentially could. And I think lots of discussions with my daughter, uh, you know, bring this to the forefront. She's like, mommy, you can do it, but don't expect everybody else can. Just because you did it doesn't mean everybody else can. And so there's all these systemic barriers that you're not looking at. And what are we doing to dismantle those and things like that? So I think it's very important to understand that you may not feel what others see. Like, I feel like I'm a person with a lot of privilege. I've got great pockets of privilege and, you know, but that's not what people see when I walk in the room. They see somebody who's not barely five feet tall, a brown woman with an accent who happens to have a role as a scientist. So that's what people see. So they assume that I've, you know, 
fought against all of these things and did all of these things. And I am just like, uh, I was very privileged. My dad had a PhD. I have forefathers who were highly educated. So, you know, it's kind of I struggled with that. That was my biggest struggle is like, how do I communicate authentically what my experience was and how do I still manage to inspire people and and in lots of discussions with my own family reminded me like look you did face all these challenges you just didn't think about it at all but you did you did face all these obstacles and look what you had to do to get past those and then you go that's true i did i did so if for somebody like me who's just productive and efficient and just forging ahead and pushing through you don't even think about all those things so that gave me the authenticity to be in these roles and speak to it but i still always bring up my pockets of privilege in full transparency saying that i grew up in india i had never seen a a woman engineer yes but it never stopped me or 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 made me think that women can't be engineers because all my classmates were working towards going to become engineers because all their dads was in, were engineering professors and we grew up in a town where everybody was engineering so it's not like i thought it was holding me back and the prime minister of my country was a woman we talked about england and the prime minister was a woman so don't think that my narrative in my head is the same as narrative in your head it's quite different in fact i feel like i was much more progressive than even my daughter feels sometimes because of all the things they feel they can't do that wasn't where i grew up and how i grew up so i think there's a lot of struggles that i had but communication wasn't the big one it was just how do i authentically settle in this role and find my voice and be able to speak to it and when i really dug deep and realized look i really didn't want to be in stem everybody knew that i wanted to be in journalism and things like that mm. but for my parents it was like you were being a scientist that's what you're going to be back in the day you did what your parents told you from where i grew up and all that mm. good stuff you know so i think that narrative and then seeing like i said my my kids and their reactions to science and what was happening that really made me and then i thought about every discussion that i have with mentees and in the workplace and i realized there are so many issues that we don't accept or push back or try to change so we have to band together and to make them just because it worked out for you doesn't mean it'll work out for everyone else because there are all sorts of things that are going on I had to become a lot more thoughtful, a lot more reflective and a lot more not me everyone else. But I put myself out there constantly also to show that that there are contraviews to certain things as well so that there's a balance of those. Just because I can speak up at a meeting doesn't mean everybody can. Just because I will interrupt and stop someone doesn't mean everybody can, you know, those kinds of things. And there's lots of things that other people can do that I can't. So, not one person's experience makes for what the general experience of that is, but collectively if you read enough and understand and assimilate, you realize that there are some really big issues in the way it's talked about and the way the careers are laid out and the way the schemes of reward and recognition and all of that works and the way confidence is is sort of assessed and things like that and all those things stack up against women many times so that's how i've come into this role long answer to a simple question around communication so you you bring up a couple of things and honestly like i i wish we had like 4 hours to talk cuz there's so many things that i want to ask you but I think it's interesting because you talk about how it was not abnormal for you to go into engineering and that's what your parents pushed you to from a cultural standpoint. And 
I, I was in a very similar place. My, my dad was, had a PhD in engineering technology and he had three daughters. And so he wanted one of his daughters to be an engineer. It, both of my sisters started out in, in engineering, changed to being English majors. And I started out in architecture and became an engineer. It was not abnormal to me. Like I didn't feel out of place. I didn't feel out of place in my college classes. I was one of four women in a class of 75, but it didn't seem weird. It wasn't until I entered the job market in a, in, I worked at a utility where I felt that there was anything strange about it. And I, and that was almost more because I worked with technicians, I think, than because I worked with engineers. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you also bring up an interesting point because I have, I have two daughters and a son and my daughters wanted nothing to do with anything around science or math or engineering. I would be like, well, take a coding class. Mom, my friends aren't in coding. Mm-hmm. Go to robotics. Mom, my friends aren't in robotics. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can't even encourage my own kids to go into engineering. How am I going to, yep. you know, encourage other women to go into engineering? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you had something similar. Uh, how can I ask how old your kids are? Yes, my son who's twenty three and our daughter who's nineteen. Okay, so wow, that's actually it's like super interesting because my oldest my oldest daughter is turning twenty three in August. My middle daughter is nineteen, and then I have a son that's fifteen. Mm-hmm. So. What do they do or what are they pursuing? So uh, with my son, it was very clear, you know, we're going to robotics. Yay, we're going to robotics and coding and all of that. Yep, my son is too. (laughs) Yep, it worked all out, you know, and so he is actually going to pursue a PhD in computer science. He's already done with his uh, master's and and, and, uh, bachelor's. And uh, with my daughter, it was really difficult. She loved the context of science. She loved doing projects. I mean, it's interesting. I... I tell people and they're always, you know, surprised, you know, for somebody who says she's not interested in science, she won the International Science and Engineering Fair as a ninth grader, uh, you know, so it's, it's just this, the context, I'm going to solve a problem. Okay, I'm going to solve a problem. It didn't matter to her what the science took. She was going to solve a problem. She's going to talk about it. And that's it. And that's that. But when it came to science classes and who was in the classes, how it was taught and all of that. It just wasn't inspiring to her. So she is uh, is doing uh, social sciences. So she's in uh, sociology and, uh, you know, at, she's going to be more in the public health policy and those kinds of things. So science, but not really STEM, you know, and I was like, more power to you, whatever you think is the right thing to do. But I do feel in my hearts of heart that we lost somebody who could have contributed in the STEM as well. Uh, and bringing, again, their problem-solving mindset versus I'm going to grind through this one subject and one expertise to kind of, like me, chasing problems. And it doesn't matter what the solution is and what area it is. And I'm going to learn that. That's the easy part. I want to pick a meaty problem and solve it. And that's what who she was. But I think you're absolutely right. Back in the day, we didn't feel it as much. And it wasn't out there as much. This social construct and social conditioning of girls and boys and this and that, I think it's it, it happened much later. And it was just too unfortunate that it happened at the scale that it did that we have lost out on many 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 people uh in in our field and now we have to raise that level of understanding that stem professionals have a strong role in shaping the future of the world don't you want to be part of that you know how do you make sure you bring uh, girls and 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 that's why 
lots of these efforts are targeted towards that because we have to undo this 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 conditioning which is lasting impact girls are still not signing up in those classes and they're not going to go to the class if their friends are not in that class and that's just the way it's going to be because that's how they're they're thinking through the social aspect of it is important and it should be important why should social aspects of things not be important why is it okay to not have one you know way one gender thing sources the other i mean i'm just constantly thinking about that isn't it great that we have the differences because our survival depended on it well and i would be like if there's none of your friends that are in robotics bring one of your friends to robotics that's kind of what what i was mm-hmm. trying to do but they're like no they're not interested and oh so, yeah we people- we tried and my, my my we went my husband went and and all of that and then you know it's interesting there were distinct behaviors that i wouldn't be certain would turn my daughter off she wasn't allowed to do certain things uh boys were you know just like like who are you and why are you here you know so that's that's the big deal also that we have to make sure we are targeting the right messages to our boys also and men need to be allies in this and they need to you know i give the example of the draw a scientist experiment that social experiment that has been conducted over the years i mean none of the boys ever draw a woman scientist and and, and it's like if you don't even draw that at a young age how are you going to deal with scientists who are going to be you're working with right so that social conditioning is happening very early on and it's happening because of what they see and what they observe and what they feel and and girls all day long are drawing uh, Uh, you know men as scientists especially when they get older it's the, it's the strangest thing when they're young they have themselves as scientists so they picture a woman as a scientist but as they grow older they're like oh what am i thinking you know and they start drawing men it's so scary in a way that we have kind of written it off from their heads that they can do this. So I think we have to do more to just communicate that you don't need some extra super special powers and you have to work hard just like everything else if you want to be successful at and you can be somebody who brings your creative mindset to science. I was nearly like tearing up from when you said from what you just said about girls drawing men as scientists and not seeing themselves and women not seeing themselves as they it is it is cast and so it's sad. it's very emotional to me also and i'll tell you this this always makes me want to tear up is in my daughter's class only two people drew a woman scientist and my daughter was among one of them so i think somewhere deep down it did make a difference that mommy was a scientist right somewhere deep down it did so i am happy to see that but i'm disappointed that none of the other girls even at that young age did so the fact that scientists go to schools and present there and do that the more we do the better so that people see okay here's someone's mom who's coming on career day and is a scientist you know things like that all those little things make a difference portraying a scientist as a woman in a show yes it makes a huge difference let them see all those positive role models and that's why we're super excited about shattering stereotypes through this movie you know showing those examples and and doing it in a movie because that's what people watch you know mm-hmm. you got to go where they are and 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 make a big deal about that. I have to say I so last week I was my oldest daughter lives in Bozeman, Montana and I went to I went to visit her for the week and I have to say there were two things that gave me hope on this trip. On my flight out there, there were two men traveling with babies by themselves on a plane so they're like, you know, kind of like blocking the the 
jet bridge because they're dealing with the strollers and stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome to see. I mean, I was kind of annoyed because I want to get at my seat, but you know, and then on my, both of my flights home, cause I live in Brainerd. So I take, I usually have like a flight from Minneapolis to Brainerd, my 20 minute flight that lets me have a four minute TSA check and no, not pay for parking. Both of my pilots between Bozeman and Minneapolis and Minneapolis and Brainerd were both women. Wonderful. It was the best thing. I was like, it, it, I mean, they're, they're, you know, not engineers, not scientists, but it's breaking barriers. And I almost think there's probably less women pilots than there might be engineers yeah. scientists. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a really, it provided me a lot of hope. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And that's why every single thing that we can do as individuals, as corporations, as networks, as countries, as companies, everything makes a difference. Uh, Again and again and again, we have to say that it is not for any other reason, but for the betterment of society. Let me let me ask you this, because I I was a little torn on this, because I do like to use things in my personal life and correlate them to things in my professional life. I didn't want to point this out, though, because I, I feel like it should be normalized. Like we shouldn't be like celebrating men traveling with their babies. We maybe should be celebrating women pilots, but it should be normalized. But at the same time, I'm like, it made me so happy. I don't I don't know. Do you have a thought on that? Like what? I think because it's so rare, uh, you know, and it's becoming more and more. Uh, common and it's just the social conditioning that we ourselves take notice like you shouldn't have taken notice of Mm -hmm. it but you did well he was sitting next to me one of them was sitting next to me so right and then I think it's it's just uh uh, it's all signs of progress it's all signs of progress and I think uh I'm very impressed with the younger generation of men as well I think I see them realizing that how unfair certain things are and I I can see them being true allies in 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 much of this and I can you know speak for myself I mean my husband is a true ally and 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 we are you know lockstep on this then you know two careers and family and this and that and so I think that's also a privilege that I have but I think like you said it should be normalized that you know two people have careers and 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 Whatever it is that you want to do, being able to live that potential and not not be able to do something because society says that's not what you do or social conditioning or, or things like that, I think. So I'm hopeful that the context changes and I'm hopeful that the change happens and, and we have to just keep keep driving it. The thing that is interesting that you mentioned is a lot of women in your podcast are talking about it. And you also see that a lot of them are spending a lot of time and energy on this. And this is also something that means that that may be time and energy they aren't spending on doing some of the other things that many men might be doing at that time, focusing more on, uh, you know, the job at hand or whatever. So I think that's the other thing that needs to be normalized is just because you're working doesn't mean that you can't be a whole person. And that's part of bringing that Mm -hmm. authentic truth self to work is like many women are fired up about many of these issues and are spending extra time in mentoring and doing all of those things and 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 is there recognition of that when you start evaluating people and you go well what did you do today for me how many experiments did you run yes i did run experiments but i taught five others how to do this 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 and this and so i think all those philosophies are emerging where it's like yeah in order to feel fulfilled and satisfied that's what i want i want it to be such that i can 
and say, I did this for myself and I did this for others. And I, that's how I feel fulfilled. I want to have a purpose and, a, and something in my job that inspires me. I just want to want to be, I didn't did hundred experiments and just be a drone doing that. And workplaces are recognizing that. So I think all the right dials are moving in the right direction. The question is, you know, how many needles do you have to move to finally move those mountains? I think that's a great point because I don't know traditionally, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm, I'm in a new position. I've only been at my company for a year, so I've only had one annual review. So I, I'm not exactly sure what my company's position is, but I think that that is so true that that, you know, that inspiration and that mentoring and all of those things that you're doing is just as important as, well, for me as a consultant now, billable hours or, you know, whatever that, that other metric is, what are you doing to, you know, move that needle forward? I think that's super, super important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I know we're like, we're running out of time, but I do want to like quick ask you because we're similar in age. I'm curious, what was it like, like for you when you like started having, like when you had your kids and going back to work and maternity leave, and you talked about your, your husband being an ally, how did that work? Just that process of going from like working person to working mom. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I haven't, you know, thought about it a lot lately, but uh, in looking back, I can tell you that's a stressful time. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and for, um, uh, you know, juggling careers and, and, and babies and, 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 and everything else that comes along with it. But somewhere along the way, I think I made this, this uh, sort of thing called work-life semblance. Uh, and I talk about that in the book also. It's not work-life balance because that's just so <laughs> off to me. It's like when it's work, it's less life. When there's more life, there's less work. And I just didn't like that idea of that mm-hmm. metaphor, metaphor of balance. But I call it work-life semblance, which is I'm going to make decisions at work like I do at home and decisions at home like I do at work when applicable. So something that needs, you know, uh, work-like decision, it's going to happen in that way even at home. So it's kind of annoying to people around me, but that saves me from context switching constantly and also saves a lot of burden. So what it made me is very vocal at work about certain things. I mean, people won't say certain things. You're from Minnesota. You know, people don't say things in Minnesota a lot of times, (laughs) but I was just like, you know what? I'm going to have to say this for effectiveness and efficiency. Um, It's going to be said. And I just, Uh, because I would say it at home why would I not say it here you know and so those kinds of things it it just became uh, second nature to me that I'm not gonna try and be one persona here one persona there and all this just is I can't handle it it's just too much for me so there's obviously that's a double-edged sword people go oh my gosh this lady you know speaks her mind opinionated oh my god she feels this way about that there's water cooler talk all of that but still I feel like it was the right decision for me to have that work-life semblance the other thing I should point out is I uh, you know, I already mentioned that my husband's awesome as it relates to the home piece. I mean, wonderful, uh, especially now that I've taken this role. There's all sorts of engagements that I have, and he has is, is, is definitely uh, stepped up even more. But the other point I want to mention is we are immigrants here, like, so we had no family. We have no family. Oh. So it's not like, Oh, I'm dropping a baby off at mom's. I'm, you know, dropping at my brother's. My sister's going to babysit. We don't have any of that. It's just us, the two of us. So it was really uh, good that I come from a culture where 
it's very traditional and very okay for the mother to come when you're you're having a baby. So that was the t first thing I told my mom, you're coming. And so she came and spent four months, uh, you know, first four months with, with us. So that was great. And then my mother-in-law came for the next four months. And then for one month, we went to India. So I kept the kids out of daycare for nine months. So that's the great part about, uh, you know, the culture that I come from. So it worked out really well. And I did that with both my, my kids. So that gave me a little bit more of a sort of help and eased some of my stresses and delayed anyway till they were nine months old and you had to put them in daycare. And then life is always, it's, it's never going to be perfect. The sooner you realize that, I think the easier it is. So, you know, you just make your best effort at whatever it is you're doing. Are you going to miss some games? Yes, you are. Are you going to miss some things? Are there going to be misgivings about some things? Yes. You know, even now when I have certain arguments with my children, I blame myself and go, if only we would have done this or this okay, or that. And then I go, no, you know what? I, I, I don't know. Let me be the parent who is not going to take credit and I'm not going to take blame either. Uh, so it's, it's kind of strange how you develop your own system and, and you become the products of that system. And somehow you're going to have to be okay with it. That's just how it is. And I realize that for women, it's very hard. Even now, even when they're in school, I'm constantly worried about their well-being and this and that. And, and it's just like my husband just looks at me and is like, why are you going crazy about something? things that you like you have no no idea but it's just and I keep telling him this is what women carry all day long with them right every minute of the day we carry this with us and we still function remarkably well that's the superhuman aspect of it we better recognize that and so I have so much respect for people who are you know, able to walk around even with these paralyzing thoughts in our head about our children and our parents and our spouses and our everything. So I know this is, this sounds like we can't function, but we can and we do and we are incredibly productive. So give yourself a break. <laughs> what you just said is so yeah. true. Like, so I talked about going to Bozeman last week, my daughter had surgery and I went to Bozeman to take care of her to drive her to her surgery. She's almost 23 years old, but I'm like, I'm your mom. I want to come take care of you. And it's, and I was working while I was there. And it's like, you're trying to balance like 14,000 things. It's like, I just imagine like the cat in the hat picture, you know, like with all the plates and everything balanced, you're trying to keep everything. And somehow the majority of the time we keep all of those plates and bowls and fish balanced. Absolutely. You're Absolutely. Right. It is a miracle. <laughs> you know? It is a miracle. And most women recognize it because they think like that and they're recognizing that. But how do we bring it out and lean into that, that that's what we do? You know, I can be planning a dinner menu and an experiment and this <laughs> and that, and I'll still, everything will be okay. It'll all come out. So those are some incredible leadership skills that are so much needed right now when we have five different issues to deal with and you can't prioritize your way down to killing one beast. No, you've got to do this, 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 and this. So I think that's that's the other struggle right it's like you can take how women think and put it in a narrative that is so demeaning or maybe saying that you can't function because you're going to be emotional about this or you're going to do this and you're going to be indecisive this this that no 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 hold on <laughs> that's not always the case of course we're generalizing you and i are generalizing right now but i still feel like we've got to lean in on the skills and evolutionary grants that were given to us and everybody has to recognize the the, the shortcomings of everything around them and that it was all needed and and any system that does not have all of this has a problem well and what's wrong with bringing emotion 
right? I mean, we mm-hmm. all have emotion. Do you have to hide it, all of your emotion because you're at work? I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I feel like that's part of bringing your authentic self to work too. I mean, maybe it's not yep. necessarily bursting into tears all the time, but I think that we've been taught for so long that it's, you know, a horrible thing to cry. I, I had a conversation with somebody last week and it wasn't like someone at my company, but it was a, a work thing. And I cried because mm-hmm. I was so angry mm-hmm. and I'm like, we're, we're so we're, we're taught that that is bad. Mm-hmm. Is it necessarily bad? You know, mm-hmm. I think we need to question some of those narratives too. Like why yeah. do we have yeah. to not bring mm-hmm. emotion with us? I literally cry at every presentation. I I'm done caring. I mean, it's, it's just, if something moves me, uh, it's you're going to know. And uh, that's exactly right. It's bringing my whole self to work. And uh, who d- can dare say I'm not productive just because I have a moment of, of tear? I mean, not really. I mean, I think those narratives just need to just go away. And I think uh, they are going away. I must say that people are beginning to recognize that nobody needs a robot for a leader. Nobody wants a drone for, a, you know, it's, it's people are realizing we're people. And the more we realize we're people, the better off we're going to be because we will make decisions recognizing we're people and then we're making decisions about people. I've been seeing a therapist during COVID, but for something else, but it's been helpful to have a therapist during COVID. And she talks about how you need to recognize those emotions and pushing those emotions to the side. I mean, granted, there is a time and a place, I think, for certain things, but being able to be more aware of them and to acknowledge them is really important. And I think we damage ourselves if we don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. And I think, again, it takes all types. And uh, that's exactly at the heart of it, what diversity is, right? I mean, it yeah. takes all types and we have to in- include. So if we really mean what we're saying, it means the system can handle all this diversity. It's not built for a monolith, you know, uh, that everybody is cut from the same cloth, thinking the same way. You know, that's not what it is. Diversity is going to bring all of this and we should be all okay dealing with each other and giving each other grace and and mm-hmm. there's going to be times where we all gonna uh, but at the end of the day we're all gonna grow stronger closer and more effective and and address the issues that we know we need to face i think what you just said about giving each other grace is such a key point you know if if we could just be better about giving each other grace i think we would solve a lot of problems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're right so i want to end with what advice would you give to a girl or young woman thinking about going into engineering or science or STEM? And you have a whole book of advice. So thank you. I appreciate the plug for the book. I really think that would be uh, something that really captures that. But I think, you know, to all the girls who want to, you know, sort of change the world and, and solve real problems that matter, I say STEM is for you. We need more people who have communal goals and aspirations in STEM. We have so many sustainability challenges ahead of us. You know, they will need people like you to solve them and if you are considering stem or considering leaving stem because humanities may feel more intuitive science is for you because as i said the real stickish stem it's science humanities technology engineering and math so bring that much needed mindset that is exactly what we need and and for all those professional women you know who are poised to start their roles and are wondering if they can succeed in a corporate career i want to tell them yes you can you know and that's exactly what we need everyone is the science and engineering type we can't let the pervasive stereotypes about what science is and who enters and who persists and who excels deter you and and i'm a living example so um go for it Jayshree, I have absolutely 
love talking to you. Like I said, I could, I feel like I could talk to you for like four hours and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and thank you so much for all that you do to advocate, to get more people into STEM. Thank you, Kathy. And thank you for what you do, uh, getting the word out and highlighting and putting the spotlight on, on women in STEM, because that's very much needed as we discussed today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. You can find a link to the documentary, Not the Science Type, and Jayshree's book, The Heart of Science, in the episode notes, along with a list of definitions and acronyms. If you like this podcast, please rate it and tell your friends. And please join me for future episodes. Thank you. Thank you.